Hello. Hi, John. Mm. Oh, late night DJ voice, Dan. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. You're giving me the the Venus flytrap. <laughs> am, am I? Is that slang yeah. that I should know? Well, yeah. If you For don't know some... it, then you don't know it. That's the thing about slang. <laughs> I've got... I don't know what that means. Mm, the Venus flytrap. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at looking this up now. Urban yeah, Dictionary. Uh huh. No, that's not what start. you mean. This is not what you mean. Well, what does it say in Urban Dictionary? I'm not. This is a family friendly show. I'm not going. to. Oh no, 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 no! It's a it's an older <laughs> reference than. I mean, you know what you know what it is. Urban Dictionary doesn't even know that slang. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, Urban Dictionary can go take a hike. This isn't some kind of. <laughs> this isn't some sort of millennium speak. This is like some old school references. It's I a will, reference, Dan. I will. Uh, I will leave it as an exercise to the listener to see what Urban Dictionary says about that. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that they're going to enjoy that, and some, you're going to get some angry letters. I'm sure. Yeah, I can't people. wait. I can't they're wait. I'm going to tell you what it is. Hmm. How are you this morning? Or I guess it's not morning here. You're probably you're probably three barbecues in, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, so almost the end of the day here. But no, I'm doing yeah. good, doing good, doing good. Looking forward to doing this show because I feel oh. like you've you've got a lot of uh, lot to talk about. You've become and since the last time that we uh, talked here, you've had an article published, yeah, in print, no less, yeah. Yeah, speaking of old-fashioned media, it used to be a big deal to get in print. Yeah, and then and then for a while it was sort of a question about whether print even existed. But now <laughs> there are so few venues to get to get actual published. You know, to get into a newspaper. How many of them are there? Yeah, I'm not really finishing my sentences very well. How many newspapers are there? Not as many. Fewer. Fewer. Yeah, so that there's that. What else? What else? You 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 made it sound like there was a big list of things that uh, it happened. Were you doing something with? I mean, I'm trying to keep I'm trying to keep up with you, and now it, I I keep getting excited because I'll see that all of a sudden you will be tweeting something. I'm like, oh, good, he came back to Twitter. But no, it's just it's actually just you putting something on Instagram, and you have it hooked up to your Twitter so that it tweets it when you do it. Well, I have, in all honesty, I have been lurking around Twitter a little bit more, but it, but it confirms every time it confirms it. Some last time I was there, oh, you know, I what was it? I I wrote something on Facebook, speculating about because I'd been having this conversation with a guy, and the question came up. You know, Chris Cornell had been doing these Temple of the Dog shows, and I don't know if. If all of our listeners know what Temple of the Dog is, but Chris Cornell used to have a roommate whose name was Andy Wood, and Andy Wood was uh, this—he was the singer of a band called Mother Love Bone. Yeah, I remember them. Yeah, and Andy Wood was. This was before the Seattle scene. I mean, the Seattle scene had no sound or center. There was no unifying characteristic of it. Every single band was completely different from every other band. There was no such thing as grunge. It was just like, you know, it was complete free for all here. And Mother Love Bone was this, they were very glam rock. They were 
much more consistent with what was on the radio at the time, the sort of poison warrant, um, that school of metal, although they were, they were way more fun cause they were smart, you know, they were wry or at least Andy Wood was smart. Um, but it was like, you know, style metal. Yeah. But, and, but they, at the time, I think everybody expected that their debut was going to be the record that, that was the beginning, right? They were going to be the biggest band in Seattle. And then Andy Wood died of a heroin overdose, very young. And he and Chris were very close. And so Chris in his grief wrote a bunch of songs in tribute to Andy Wood and made a really quick record with the members of Mother Lovebone who turns out formed a new band called Pearl Jam hmm. and their brand new singer Eddie Vedder who nobody in Seattle had ever heard of Chris Cornell very generously you know gave him a featured role on the uh, on the album dedicated to his friend and that band was called Temple of the Dog. And they had a couple of hits because during the grunge period, anything could happen. Everybody was getting hits. Hits left and hits right. Right. So they had just done a couple of reunion shows. Hardly any. You know, they did a, one in L.A., one in Seattle type of thing. Um, but Temple of the Dog had on, only never played maybe or only, you know, Played live once or maybe played live never. I'm not exactly sure, but but they were – it was just a one-off type of thing. So he did these shows. Anyway, suffice to say that I commented on Facebook to the effect that, wow, it hadn't occurred to me, but those shows were not that long ago. That was like November or December of last year. And, you know, maybe that – maybe when Andrew died, Chris didn't process it. Maybe he – uh, you know, maybe this sort of dislodged something and it contributed to his, you know, uh, pre-existing depression and just sort of, you know, maybe it was a, uh, it's interesting to think that maybe this was a contributing factor in some way, just like, it's just an interesting idea, right? We're talking about people that are they're, you know, they're public figures and this is part of history now. Like interesting to 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 make that connection. Some guy on Twitter that I've never heard of. Oh, you know what it was? It was that 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 um, got reposted to some music websites, and somebody just comes swinging in and says, "How dare you? This kind of wild speculation." <laughs> It, you know, imagine how the other members of Temple of the Dog feel at, that you you're blaming them for Chris's death. Just stop, and and, and some use some other inflammatory terms to the effect that I was a idiot or you know something. You know, some just sort of rife with insults yeah. in addition to all of these sort of pronouncements. And I was like, and this is, I think is a common thing on the internet too. The, I mean, we've, we've talked about them before, right? The, the crusader or sure. the, the, um, the person that takes great umbrage on behalf of someone else wh whom he also doesn't know, right? Like this guy is, is presenting his 
position as being the defender of the other members of the of temple of the dog's feelings. Like, think about their feelings, says random Joe in random town somewhere. <laughs> right. And, uh, you know, and I wrote him back and was like, because I, you know, this is the problem with me on Twitter. I just can't let this stuff go. But I'm, but I, you know, my first response is to be like, you're an idiot. Go fuck yourself. And then I'm like, no, wait a minute. And I, I think that's know, everybody's I, first response <laughs> on the internet. But very carefully, I said, you know, uh, and, and I picked only one of about 30 different ways I could have addressed him. You know, there's a lot of things I could have said, but I picked the one that seemed most interesting to me, which was, sir, you are angry at me for speculating about how a person might have felt. And by way of being angry at me, you are speculating about how the members of Temple of the Dog must feel. And so either speculating about somebody's feelings on the internet is, is bad, which is what you're stipulating, in which case you shouldn't do it either. This whole conversation should just, well, let's just fold it in on itself. Or speculating about somebody's feelings on the internet is fine and useful, in which case, why are you yelling at me? Right. But what you can't do is be mad at me for doing it and and use, use your own speculation as proof or something, you know? And of course, I know that, they're, that the person is never going to be like, ha ha, oh, wow, interesting, I didn't notice that, you're right. <laughs> Sorry. No, that will never happen. <laughs> Thanks for pointing that out or, oh, you know, like good point or anything like that. And he just comes back in with some other like, oh, so I guess it's okay to just kill Chris Cornell and kill all his friends. Fine. And it's like, oh, <laughs> sure. Like, it doesn't matter if I, it doesn't matter who I follow on Twitter, right? I could, I could unfollow every single person that, that is a bad vibe on there. But anytime something goes out, there's going to be this guy coming in. And I, and I don't know why I'm not bulletproof to that kind of thing, but it's just those little encounters. And it was true a long time before the internet. When I, when I worked at a shop downtown, those little encounters where a guy would come in and, and like throw his change down on the counter. And I would say, what the, what the heck is that? Like, you don't just throw your change down on the counter. This isn't some kind of, this isn't some situation where I'm grateful for your 75 cents for this pack of gum. Like, bring it with a little civility. And the guy's like, oh, well, screw you, and stomps off. And I'll sp I'd spend two days thinking about yeah. that I should have thrown a quarter at the back of his head or something. You know, there were, there were a couple of encounters I had at that store that I still... Like that you dwell not, on them, don't you? I know exactly what you're talking about. I still haven't let it go. Everybody I does still, this though. This is not, this is a, just being a human being, I think. Well, but you know, I don't think that's true. I think there are people that let it go. And also even, even if it is true, uh, th those brooding, that brooding, it still does damage. I mean, I'm wasting precious daylight. Yeah. Sitting around <laughs> wondering about what I should have said to somebody 24 years ago yeah. who was being mildly rude. And, and I guess that's, that's what I, 
oh, there's been so little, there's been so little emotional peace in my life. And, and I really am seeking it now. Some, something where I'm just, there's no reason to be irritated all the time and people like it. They, they thrive on it or somehow being irritated all the time gives them a purpose or it puts a frame around their day somehow because there's, because they seek it, you know, it's not, life just isn't that irritating really, unless you're pouring energy into it. Right. Because there are people that aren't irritated all the time and they're living it's like in the same world. like you were talking about there. driving, taking your time when you, when you drive a couple weeks ago and just saying, you know what, you're going to still going to get there and you're just going to do it with no stress. I don't know how to accomplish it other than to, you know, to, to, to notice the things in life that are, that are causing that kind of stress. I mean, I miss Twitter. I really do. I miss my friends there. I miss the fun. I miss the, uh, I mean, every day I would sit and think of eight little tweets and there are still things I want to talk about that there's just no other venue than Twitter. You can't talk about them other places. You can't posit an idea, throw it out there and, and get a bunch of thoughtful responses back from smart people in any other place. But that, the amount of damage that kind of interaction does where just some dingling has access to my brain and can say things like what that guy was saying, which on the surface of it, you know, like he thinks that he's smart. He thinks that he's helping. He thinks that he's doing a useful service. He's, he doesn't understand that he's just like, he should just shut up. Like, what are you, what, why are you even here? What do you, what do you have to add here? Like, this is a dumb, your premise is dumb. Um, like a public <laughs> figure died, somebody that I know he had, or somebody that I, you know, I'm in that social circle. I'm not blaming temple of the dog. It doesn't affect them one way or the other. They're thinking that same thing themselves. We're all trying to figure out what's going on. What happened? This is just, this isn't like, I'm not blaming anybody. You're, you're, you don't know how to read or you're just, you know, you're a crusader and crusaders are dumb. And that, so, so that's my takeaway. You know, I spent, I, I spent 40 minutes on there. I read 25 interesting things, but this is the guy that comes home with me. And, and so I, do, so that kind of damage, I just don't. You want to be out of it. You want to put it, you don't have space in your life for that. And it's a, and it's a tragedy to me that I, that I, um, that I have to lose the thing that I love that's good in order to not have mm. that. Because in the course of a, a single day in my life, like I walk out of my house and there's a guy working on the house across the street. And at one point, uh, and he's like a drunk carpenter, let's call him he, quite a bit older than me and working as a carpenter and has a big red nose. And at one point I wheeled my my somewhat broken lawnmower out to the front yard. And you know, it's not a broken lawnmower because if I had taken one small engine repair class in high school, I would be able to fix this lawnmower and it would be fine. But I didn't take that and I don't want to schlep it to somebody who did. And lawnmowers are like 150 bucks and I got five years of service out of this one. And it's just like, I hate that I'm, I live in a disposable culture of this sort that I'm 
that I'm irresponsible with my tools or whatever, but I was just like, okay, this lawnmower has been frustrating me for a year. It's gone. I'm going to go to the Home Depot. I'm going to buy a new lawnmower or McClendon's or whatever. So I wheel the lawnmower out and this, the drunk carpenter from across the street says, you just get rid of that. And I said, you can have it if you want. And he was like, great. <laughs> and he comes over and he gets the lawnmower. And then he says, well, does it have the side attachment? And I said, eh, I don't know, maybe over in the, maybe in the barn. I mean, I'm headed out, but uh, I'll look for it when I, when I get back. And he's like, great. Okay. And for the next <laughs> two weeks, every time I saw this guy, he was like, what about that side attack? <laughs> <clears throat> and you know, I'm always coming and going. I'm not out thinking about the side attachment when I'm puttering around in the barn and, and you know, my life's gotten a little bit unruly lately and the, the side attachment is probably buried under a lot of other things that I need to get to, you know, I need to address all that stuff this spring. And after about two weeks of this guy I was like, you know what? I haven't seen the side attachment. If I see it, I'll bring it to you. I don't need to be reminded. The guy was, he sh kind of sh gave a shrug of like, well, fuck you then. Mm -hmm. I was like, enjoy your free lawnmower. Right. But that kind of like face to face encounter where there's any kind of, you know, like thing that you would go home and say, I should have told that guy, enjoy his free lawnmower. And I didn't. Yeah, that's a, that's a small number of, of face to face things. It, it hardly ever happens and it can, it can throw you off if it happens, but God on the internet, it happens every single day, at least as far as I can tell. Oh yeah. I log on and I, I just always have that feeling of dread of just like, ugh, what's waiting for me out here? Who is accusing me of being anti-feminist today? Or who is accusing me of being insensitive to the members of Temple of the Dog today? And I just don't, ugh. But I'm also, Dan, I, honestly, I'm in, a, I'm in a, a vulnerable and uprooted feeling place in my life and heart right now. So Uprooted in, in what way? Well, you know, my mom sold her house yesterday. Uh, was that what the picture was? You didn't have any explanation of that. It said, mom, thumbs up. Yep. Standing there. Well, and I, you know, honestly, <clears throat> I put that picture there because I wanted to celebrate my mom uh, selling her house. She, she was thrilled just, to death. She was thrilled to death. And I wanted to commemorate it. And I, and I did want to celebrate it. You know, I do. There is a part of my life that's online. And I wanted to say, hooray for my mom. But I, and my sister and I talked about this, the idea of saying, my mom sold her house, exclamation point, opened up the possibility that there would be a bunch of comments there of like, oh, nice for her, while I live in a studio apartment and pay $3,000 a month, or, you know, the, or the, or somebody saying 1%. Or, you know, like, <clears throat> like my mom bought that house for $190,000 in 1996 and she's 83 years old and that house is her nest egg and she just sold it. But there's, there are going to be people on the internet that think, and, and, you know, and, and it's, and it's bittersweet for us. And also we're very conscious of the fact that Seattle has changed and that this is part of a demographic shift. And my mom was one of the pioneers in the central district 
when she moved into that neighborhood, it was very poor. And now all those houses are getting fixed up and they're being sold to Amazon people. And, you know, it is, we were part of gentrification. We were, we were part and party to how the city of Seattle has changed in the last 20 years. And now she's selling, selling her house in the center of town and moving away because it's the city's changed. It's too expensive and Mm. off she goes. Well, I don't want to have all that conversation with people in the comments section. You know what I mean? Right. I don't want to be fielding dinglings or people that think they know something or have some, some bright thing to say about it where it's like, Oh, thank you person. Do you think we're not aware of that too? Like, uh, do you think, I mean, this is the crazy thing to me about the internet. It's like, do you think you've read books that the rest of us haven't? Honestly, do you think you know more about demographics or more (laughs) about gentrification or more about socialism or more about, I mean, really who out there thinks that they've got a secret pile of knowledge that the rest of the community that they're in doesn't share. If you want to fight with somebody in Oklahoma about whether or not trickle down economics works, you know, you guys go at it. But come on, a come on to my thing and argue with me about, you know, sensitivity or it's just like the 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 premise I guess I always have is sort of the Lorne Michaels premise, which is it, people are going to get the joke, right? You know, don't you don't have to overexplain it. People under people get the joke, and if you're a good comedian or a good writer, you put it out there and you you. You assume that your audience, if they're there already and they're reading it, they're going to get where you're, you're going to get the joke or the reference. And that's true of these podcasts too. Although you don't know what the Venus flytrap reference is, right? but I'm not going to sit and spend an hour telling you about it. You're on your own, Dan. I'll, I'll figure it out. It can't be this thing on urban dictionary. No, 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 it's not. But, but there's that, you know, there's that mentality of just like, oh, here's a, thought that here's the first thought that popped into my head. I'm going to shout it at you. So I put that picture on the internet, but I did not say today was the day that my mom sold her house. It's a massive watershed moment in all of our lives. This was the house where the long winters practiced in the basement for 15 years. This is the house that I lived in with my mom when I made, uh, when I pretend to fall, like my mom and I restored this house. We stripped it to the studs Mm. and rebuilt it. Um, because it was a disaster. I mean, it was a fire trap with with like falsely lowered ceilings and fluorescent lighting and linoleum over the hardwood floors. And we fixed it, the two of us. You know, she was the general contractor and I was the carpenter. Like I've got a lot of emotion about this house. Not a, not I'm it's not one of those it's not the house I grew up in, right? So it's not the house that I'm not sitting and and crying. It's like, this was the house that we lived in and we lived here for 20 years. And now, you know, back into the stream, like, here we go. Life, life putters along. I'm not sad about it, but it is emotional. Sure. And yet I can't quite get myself to, I'm not somebody that's going to go on Facebook and say, you know, I've got ringworm, everyone. 
and and I and I really want you to thumbs up me. Um, and I'm not going to go on there and say, you know, my husband's cheating on me. I mean, I'm not an oversharer, mm-hmm. but I would have liked to have said something, you know, a little bit more commemorative just for the people that are my friends, you know, here, my mom's selling our house. That is an interesting moment in my life. But my sister and I both had this feeling of like, mm, it's too easy for people to shit on it. And rather not mention it than have it get shit on by strangers right and have that be out there both have it be in our heads and be out in the world where it's like well i can now i can take that picture down or i can delete that comment but somehow it's still out there somebody somebody that was looking for a target that day found one and rather than give them a target let them wander off into their swamp and find another target, you know, don't have it be me. Don't let it because, because if they make that comment, then three years from now, they're sitting at a cocktail party and somebody's like, this town's really changed. And they're like, yeah, like John Roderick's mom, you know, it's just like, don't even, (laughs) you don't want to give them the ammunition. You don't want to give them anything. Yeah. Don't even let them plant a little seed. And when, when I start to feel like that, then I know that, Whatever, to whatever degree I thought that my life was transitioning onto the internet more and more, that I was becoming more and more a denizen there, I'm realizing that that is not true, that I, that I'm not, I need to return. I mean, it it seemed so unlikely earlier this year that I would ever really succeed at saying, you know, I think I'm going back to a flip phone, you know, like it just, it, it felt like that was that kind of intentional Ludditism was sort of a thing of the past, right? We're all looking at our phones now, just embrace it and get on with life. But, but I'm realizing like, no, I don't think that's true. I don't think that this, I don't necessarily think that this is inevitable and it may truly be like when clean water came to the city, there were people who said, I don't want to pay tax dollars to put water pipes in the dirt so that we can all get clean water because I have a well at my house and it works fine. And for a while, there were people on the outskirts of town or throughout the city that were still, they still had well water that were kind of within the city. But gradually the city said, look, we all, we're building this system. Everybody wants it. So everybody gets it, you know, it was, it ends up being a municipal, everybody gets electricity to their house. Everybody gets water. And there were people that held out against it for various reasons, but there didn't, there wasn't a, a gulf of like certain, a large section of the population opted out of getting electricity to their houses right? There's no divide anymore in America between people whose houses are electrified and people whose houses aren't. I think there was, I mean, when my mom was a kid, rural houses still didn't have electricity. That's amazing. But it is possible that there will be, uh, there will be some kind of cultural divide 
between people who enthusiastically opt in and, you know, defiantly opt out. And I, I'm not, I, I can't get into the head of a, of a, of a 15 year old, but my daughter's six and a half and the only thing she ever watches on TV is she and her mother watch house hunters international sure. at night. Yeah. I don't understand what the appeal of it. <laughs> I is. don't, I don't know either. <laughs> my daughter sits on her mom's lap and they watch house hunters international. It's, it's adorable. Now, now when we drive around town, she'll be back in her car seat and she'll look out the window and she'll say, Oh daddy, that's a bit of a fixer upper. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> She's looking at some house. Oh, that's a bit of a fixer up. That's really cute. But you know, she's not, <laughs> she has not yet come to the place where, and I think there are kids her age that have their own phones already. I mean, for games and stuff. But like, I don't know whether what I'm saying will prove to be true for a generation that comes up where there's, there's never not internet. But, you know, and, and I'm and I'm not sure that I want to be the father that's like, we're moving to the mountains where there is no internet. Because eventually the, the internet will catch us no matter where we are. But how do you find, oh my God, I hate the word mindfulness, but like, how do you, how do you live without this ugliness and be on the internet? I don't want to I don't want to introduce my kid to a world where the assumption is that this because it's not the ugliness of like oh the environment you know it's or even like the macro ugliness trumpy ugliness it's this daily tiny little just shittiness like you're exposing yourself to shitty people mm-hmm. That if you if you only had twenty friends like we all used to, right? If the one of them shitty, you stop being their friend. Um, it's shitty people, but it's not shitty people like somebody standing on a street corner screaming at you. It's shitty people that have access to you, that have as much access to what you're saying as your friends do. I mean, I guess what it is, you lock your account. Uh, but that's you know, I'm a broadcaster. Well, anyway. Thanks for joining us again here on <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with the internet? What do we do? Dude, I mean, and I, I, maybe we're, maybe this is a symptom of, of uh, that, uh, that I'm old. I don't maybe, or maybe not old so much as more traditional. I mean, we come from that time. We really do where people were, like the way with with the exception of having like a pen pal you knew people because you met them and usually you were introduced to them or you ran into them at a thing that both of you like doing you know like if if you if you were into fixing motorcycles and you were like in the motorcycle parts store and there were other people in there buying parts for their motorcycles you might strike up a conversation with the motorcycle person and that's how you would meet someone and you're talking about IRL. Yeah, there you go, in real life. And so that's kind of, I mean, like, I still meet people in real life, but I think a lot of people consider people that they've never met still in, in to be, I mean, I know many people that would say some of their closest friends are people that they only know online, that they've never met 
you know, ever in person. And even though I have plenty of friends, people I would consider to be a friend that I've never met, meeting them changes everything. I usually, for the better, meeting people in person is like, for me, I would much rather, if, if you and I could be sitting in the same room, I would much prefer that. I would much, much prefer that than doing this over Skype. Hmm. Because I like people. I like hanging around with people. I like talking to people. Like looking looking at people's faces is a nice thing. I would like it if we could be in the same room if you brought lunch every time. I'd bring lunch every time. Because you have very good lunch, it seems like. I I would bring lunch every single time. Yeah, see, that sounds good. We would like to thank our sponsor today. It is Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country with a single mission to make great home cooking accessible to everyone. Because what happens? It's the end of the day. Like, I don't, I don't know what I want to eat. I don't, feel like, I don't feel like trying to figure it out and look through some recipe websites and come up with something and then got to go to the store and buy all the stuff. And eventually, what do you want? You wind up, you know, doing some kind of like microwave pizza or something. And that's not really, that's not really dinner. It's not really food. Wouldn't you rather cook something that tastes great and that you have fun making and that you can involve your significant other or your kids in? I'll tell you what, little tip for parents like me out there. uh, If you want to get your kids to try new food, have them help make it. Blue Apron is all about that. Bringing people together. Over a great meal, it's classic. It's the opposite of all this uh, Twitter stuff that we've been talking about. It's it's real people together doing something fun, eating great food. And all their food comes from really great places. They work with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the U.S. So their seafood is sourced sustainably. The beef, chicken, and pork come from responsibly raised animals. The produce is sourced from farms that have regenerative farming. So you're getting really, really high quality food and you're getting exactly the kind of food and the amount of food that you need so you don't have anything left over. You don't have any waste. And it winds up being about under $10 per person for a delicious meal. Seasonal recipes, pre-portioned ingredients let you make these delicious home-cooked meals and they are delicious and they do look just like they uh, they show you on the little the little recipe cards that they send you, they actually look like that, and they taste great. And you can cook with this kind of stuff, typically in about thirty forty minutes or less. So they have a special deal for listeners of this show. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping. That's the real kind of free by going to blueapron.com/roadwork. You're going to love how good it feels and tastes to make these great home-cooked meals. So go check this out. This is really something that will change your game up. Blueapron.com slash roadwork. I did the like work from home thing for many, many years. And at the time, I just thought how great this is that my, my I was one of those, my commutes, 15 steps from the kitchen to the, you know, and, and I used to, I used to really like that. And I, I, I mean, I was, the reality was I was very productive. Like I got so much done 
and I was super productive and super focused and didn't have interruptions, but like I was alone in a room for long blocks of time. And it wasn't because I didn't want to be around other people. It's just, that's sort of how things had, had turned out. And I, I much prefer, you know, yeah, of course I like, you know, alone time. I like time to focus. I don't like open offices, that type of thing. But interacting with other human beings is, is like super important. And I think, you know, I think that deciding who should have access to your personal information or what you decide to make personal, you know, should it be reserved to people that you've met in person? I don't know. But it it does seem, it does seem weird to share as much as we do share with, with strangers because you are kind of opening yourself up to their comments, their thoughts, you know? Well, and I wonder, I mean, there, I'm sure there are people listening who are coming up with all these solutions, right? You have a, you have a Twitter account that's just for friends or you have a Facebook account that's just for friends. And it isn't, you know, it's not that I, and, and, and honestly, like the last thing my friends need is another Facebook account from me where it's like, okay, but this is the one where I'm just picturing, posting pictures of things that matter to me. Like I don't, like I'm not, um, I don't subscribe to that world either. I am kind of an open book. I mean, I'm not an oversharer, but I'm also not like my privacy isn't a thing that I will sit and, and whinge about. Um, no, it's more, you know, it's more that I do like to, I do like to broadcast it's just that you can't control you you almost want there to be you want to have a, an assistant who sits and filters the messages and i don't just want good news if somebody if that guy had said you know if that guy had written a blog post and had linked to it and mm-hmm. said here are my thoughts on on the um the discussion of other people's mental life, the, uh, the, the speculation about what was going through their heads and w- why that is a, that's a disservice to us, you know, and it linked to it. I would have been fascinated by the idea, you know, he's exploring an idea and I'm sure that he's responding probably let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He's responding to having read a bunch of posts on his feed from people saying, Chris Cornell, you know, probably it was probably autoerotic asphyxiation or Chris Cornell killed himself because he hates his own kids <laughs> or whatever. I mean, I have no idea what he'd read up to that point in that day. And you do, you do want to think like this is a tragedy for his 10 year old kid above and beyond what anyone else could experience, you know, I mean, much more than his wife, it's like he's leaving behind kids and his kids will forever be, his kids are not on the internet right now. Look, you know, Googling Chris Cornell comments, but when they're 30 and they are asking questions about their dad and they're reading articles about it, you know, it's going to be painful for them. And who knows what, how much sense can you ever make? No one will ever know what was happening that, that day. He got off stage and an hour and a half later was dead. It's never going to, 
be understandable. And the and the reason it's important to talk about is I I mean I'm sure that maybe you know this statistic a lot of people probably do some people probably don't which is that suicide among suicide is an epidemic among men between the ages of 45 and 70 like more middle-aged and elderly men commit suicide than any other group by far hmm. and it's this sort of isolation and loneliness and feeling of irrelevance or you know of uh feeling lost and typically middle-aged men are not sharing their feelings. So they die alone over and over all the time, gunshot wounds and hanging themselves. And, and at least in my world, in addition to like all of us old rockers are kind of alone and middle-aged now. Yeah. And we also are the, the ones that have struggled mightily with drugs and alcohol. And a lot of us are sober, which Chris Cornell nominally was, but a doctor prescribed him some anxiety medication and he started abusing it because he was, because he was a drug abuser. And a lot of us have struggled with the combination, you know, who knows what the correlation between being depressed and being an artist is, but there's not no correlation. So to be middle-aged and colossally depressed, like that is also very familiar both to me and to a lot of people I know. An, a colossally depressed middle-aged male drug addict, <laughs> artist. Right. This group is highly vulnerable to this type of what happened. We thought he was doing great. Mm -hmm. No one will ever know because the 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 wave of you of like the profound unchecked depression combined with an overdose of downers, combined with the loneliness of a hotel room on the road, and. Like the that whatever, however far you would have to plummet to not have been planning suicide for a long time, which it does not seem like he was doing, right? But to spontaneously decide that you needed to end it all right now, like get it over with now. Like he went in, lock, barricaded the door, basically, like put the chain on the door, and then went in the bathroom and put some kind of chain on that door. Because he knew people would be trying to get to him and he wanted to kill himself as fast as he could. Like, what what could possibly be going on in your mind? And and so it is necessary, it's vital that we talk about it and discuss it and speculate on it. And like this Temple of the Dog speculation is not is only to say, like, oh, it could be something. I mean, obviously that's not small, but like it could be something like that something six months ago that triggered this this avalanche of buried feelings and by talking about it I'm reminding myself and I'm saying to my friends like this happens to us all the time too it's the 20 year anniversary of your old record or right you know or the 20 year anniversary of Mia Zapata's death or you know, all this stuff can sneak up on you 
and you realize I didn't deal with that at the time because I was on drugs then, you know, I didn't, I didn't face the death of my friend or the, you know, the, or the, or something awful that happened to me because I was so high and I haven't been high in a long time, but it doesn't mean I went back and, and got down in the blood and guts of all those old ugly things. So, you know, it's necessary that, that for me at least that there be a public component to my life. I don't want to just be a hermit. I don't want to turn the internet off and go sit, uh, you know, like a, like a swami under a tree with my, with my little wooden bowl, hoping somebody comes along and, and puts a crust of bread in it. I want to be in the world and talking about stuff. And I love to get some, I love to get pushback from smart people. You know, have you thought of this? Read my post on that. It's just the it's just the accessibility to the class of people that are not smart enough to realize that they're not smart. That there's that, that there's no reason. It's not like we deserve it. It's there's no reason it should be. It's I guess it's a question of 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 pure democracy versus some sort of representative democracy and, and the internet in its pure, purely democratic state. It's, it, it, it does just invite everyone freely. There's no other than the little blue check Mark. There's no ranking by quality. You don't get to look at somebody's rating and say, Oh, this guy's a one star Nobody likes this person. Their comments are garbage. And, you know, there's no Yelp you can turn to. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. All you can do is go look at that person's thing and say, oh, he's got 45 followers. But sometimes that's not a gauge. I mean, a lot of times it's not a gauge. Who cares how many followers you have? So I don't know, Dan. There's just, I mean, I, I think Ev Williams was speculating the other day on about this type of thing, like, he was just sort of apologizing for, for Twitter's role in, in the world. But, but I've, I've been off of it and it's given me a lot of relief, but also I get a lot of, a lot of people reach out and say like, please don't be gone from Twitter. Why? It's bad. It's bad to be gone from Twitter. It's better to be, it's better to be there than, than not. And, I feel it. I feel that. I I wish I I wish I could work out a solution to this. I really I don't do. know. I feel like, you know, that that if if you're you, you know, if if you just went and saw a movie and you thought or a concert or read a book, you're going to go to your friends and like, I just read this great book. You got to read this book. And they're like, "Oh, I don't really like I don't really like uh the war novels. Sorry." Oh, but yeah. you know what? This is a really good war novel. You should really read this one. Okay, well, maybe I'll get to it. Well, you know what? I bought you a copy. Here's a copy. I really want you to read it. Okay, maybe I'll read it. And, you know, it, of course, that's what people on Twitter do. People who use Twitter, of course, they want you there. Of course, they want you there because they're on there. And they want their yeah. favorite people to be on there. So, of course, the person on Twitter is saying, please don't leave Twitter and please 
be on Twitter. Yeah. Because if you were, if you, if they're there, well, of course they want you to be there because it would make it better for them. But they're not saying that out of, out of consideration for what might be the best for you, which it sounds like maybe not being on Twitter for now is probably better. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, yeah. I, We've talked about this quite a lot now, and I, and it distresses me even that that it's been the topic of so many of our shows recently, because I feel maybe I feel that uh, that people listening are are getting tired of it, you know that it's like um for most people it is a fait accompli, right? They've made their decision. They're on the internet. It's not something that they're fraught about. And continuing to be fraught about it is dull because it's not, it's just, we're just recapitulating the problem over and over. There's not, I'm not walking us out of it or walking myself out of it in any way. I just sit and am am, uh, like uh, this sort of lament, you know, I'm, I'm keening about it. And, and it, it, it is, you know, how much to say? I started taking that depression medicine last fall. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, the fall before last. And the first thing I did, because I had been running for city council that entire year up until that point. And the year before that, I was doing a weekly show at the Rendezvous here in Seattle, a live show every week. And I started taking that medicine. The first thing I did was buy a GMC RV, like immediately. That should have been a major warning sign that not being depressed all of a sudden was a lot of responsibility and I needed to calm calm the fuck down for a second. But then I got into a relationship. I got into a romantic relationship almost immediately after I started taking this medicine. And that romantic relationship has continued until just very recently. And now the romantic relationship has passed on into the into history. Hmm. And that relationship and the medicine I've been taking Like there was really never a time that I was experiencing um, the effects of this mood stabilizer right? and wasn't also in a a very intense romantic involvement with somebody, which was, you know, every day and a lot of intensity and we were oftentimes separated by a distance. So carrying on a relationship over, over a distance. Um, and then, you know, together for, for concentrated bursts. And so now, so I'm, I'm sitting here and it's springtime in Seattle and my mom just sold her house yesterday, right? right. Which was the thing that rooted me in the city. Um, even more than my own house. Sure. And, you know, my relationship is now over just very recently. And I'm, it's, and, and, and within the context of that 
relationship in that time, there was this constant promise of reinvention because I'd never really been in a relationship like that, that I was really trying to, to make work and really excited about the, it wasn't just like, I met a girl, she's nice. She lives in, we live with in the same town and she works over there and I work over there and we're dating. Right. I mean, and I'm, and I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the loves that I've had, but there was never a relationship like this where it was like, we need to fight for this. We need to really hmm. see this through all overcoming all these obstacles. Right. And, and the, and the reason we would do that is that it seemed like there was this tremendous promise of a, of a life of a, of a transformative life. Something was going to, it was sort of like the relationship was sweeping into both of our lives and was going to forever alter Mm. who we were, where we lived. It was, you know, it was a, um, see, it was serious relationship. Well, and again, like in the context of taking this medicine, it also felt like I was ready now to blossom in a different way. What, because, because the number one thing that, that, um, taking Lamotrigin did for me was that it removed the abyss. You know, I'd been standing wherever I was standing for the last 25 years, somewhere very close by there was an abyss. And if I looked down into it, it had no bottom hmm. and it was always there. You know, it was not even on my brightest days, there was an abyss. And on my darkest days, I was teetering on the edge of this abyss. Uh, and what Lamotrigin did for me was it's, it sealed the, sealed it up. It just, the floor came back and there was no bottomless pit. Wow. There was still you know, there's still a lot of darkness and, and trending toward depressive, a depressive outlook. But, but I no longer had this feeling that you could plummet forever. And pretty dramatic. Well, a change, you know what I'm saying? Massive change. I mean, a, a life altering change. And it, and this, this pill doesn't do anything else, right? It doesn't, it's not speedy. Mm-hmm. It, I don't take it and feel like jazzed. <laughs> it doesn't, uh, it's not like, it doesn't put a muffle on anything. There's no, there's no gauze between me and life. I didn't stop being interested. I didn't stop, uh, being sexual. I didn't stop being creative. All it seems to do, the only effect it had on me was that it put a floor over the over the yawning maw of despair. And my God, I mean, I just I couldn't be more thrilled. And I've I've heard from people who have a variety of of responses to this drug. Not all universally good, but all it does for me is one thing. And it's like I couldn't have asked for more. Anyway, so now here I am and like Basically today, rooted in today, I don't know, like all last year I felt like I was on the verge of a completely new life and now today I'm here in, in my house and it's not like I don't 
still have a feeling that a completely new life is waiting for me somewhere. Right. Or a completely new life is waiting for me just right outside the front door. I'm, I'm going to walk into a new life as I leave here. Um, but, but I'm back to asking the questions like, Hmm, I've been living in this house a while. Do I want to keep living in this house? Mm. Like, I'm, uh, you know, should I, should I get a haircut today? I mean, you know, I, I just, <laughs> I'm it, everything got a lot more mundane and also I'm left with, I'm left with looking back and saying, last year was not normal. It was unusual for me to be in this in this tempestuous relationship. The year before that, I was running for political office, which was very ragged. Yeah, you've. I mean, you've had a lot going on the last couple of years. But like, I don't know where my emotional. I do not know where my baseline is. I guess, Dan. I mean, I was when I was running for office, I was still a manic depressive. Hmm. So I was, you know, I was on a manic flare and then like a depressive plummet. And the year before that, when I was doing that weekly show, like I was, I was really touch and go emotionally. So hmm. I don't, I, I don't, since I was 10 years old, I've never had a consistent, it's like emotional baseline where things are good. I am good. Things are fine. I am fine. Like, here's what I do. I do this. It's good. These are my people. They're good. You know, it's never been, I've never even been conscious of the fact that a lot of people just get a baseline place where things are pretty good. And then they go off from there. And, uh, Maybe I maybe for the first time in my life I'm kind of very curious about where mine is. What's what's my what does stability look like for me? Yeah. Uh, I would never have thought that I would be happy there because because I wanted always adventure. Right. But now I don't feel like that, that that stability that I'm talking about is incompatible with adventure. You know, it feels like there's plenty of adventure in my life and there, and it doesn't show any signs of slowing down. Right. You know, I I was thinking about that the other day of like, it, it seems like you just, you can just walk outside your house and you know, find find some kind of really interesting journey well you know you seem to draw that to yourself in some way well i think everybody i don't know everybody. you know I, I go to the grocery store and nothing happens and just get food for you you'd go to the grocery store and like you wind up backstage at somebody's con- concert <laughs> or something uh you know what I I'm saying? That, or or like, you know, somebody puts a blindfold on you and leads you around the whole city for a day. You know, like that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. You're all it you you've had a lot of magical experiences and you seem to continue to, to have them. And I would think you, the stability would only give you a better place to reflect on that. Yeah. I there's something to 
there's something to to flirtiness. Um, when my mom describes me as a little kid, like a baby, mm-hmm. one, two, three years old, she says that I was just incredibly flirtatious. She would put me in a shopping cart and be walking around the store and I would catch somebody's eye. I would, you know, I would like stare at a grown up until they saw me and then they would, you know, then here's this little intense baby staring at them and then they would look at me and I would flutter my eyelashes and then I would turn away and giggle. And then the (laughs) adult would be like, who is this little baby? So then they would kind of be like, hello. And then I would turn slyly around and give them a little bit of eyelash. And then I would, you know, I'd look down and giggle and just incredibly coquettish little boy. And my mom said that there wasn't a place she could go where I wouldn't, I wouldn't have all the grownups after a very short amount of time, all kind of focused on me because I was really seeking it. And, you know, she would say she'd be standing there and she'd look over and there'd be some adult that was doing something really weird, like, you know, jumping up and down and, and pulling on their ears. And she's like, what's the matter with that person? <laughs> and then she'd realize that they were, they were interacting with me at a distance because I had <laughs> spent out some flirtation 25 feet out into the distance. Right. And my whole, I guess all through my twenties, it was a, it was a, in my twenties and thirties, it was always a problem that in, intruded into relationships because I was accused all the time of flirting. And for a long time, I was like, what are you talking about? I'm just interacting with them like a normal person. And, you know, and the response would be like, no, you were flirting with them. Are you crazy? You're totally flirting with them. And I never understood what people meant. What the hell is flirting then? If you're just look, if you're just talking to people or meeting people in the world, that's flirting. But as time went on, I realized like, oh, I'm a flirtatious person. Uh, I don't notice it. I don't see it as a bad thing because I don't have an end goal in mind. Mm. And right. I think, you know, the assumption that people have is that you're flirting in order to accomplish something. Right. And for me, flirting is just, it's a, it's its own reward. It's just, it's, it's the natural way for me. If somebody is, you know, if a waitress comes over and I'm not like it, I, I try hard not to be like dad joke guy, but if a waitress comes over and says, how's everybody doing today? I don't say fine. I'd like the macaroni. I say, well, you know, things are pretty good today. How about yourself? And if the waitress goes, well, yeah, it's been a pretty good day. I go, isn't it? You know, like, well, I really like your shoes or whatever. You know, it, it, when I meet somebody that it's kind of a, it's kind of a temperature gauge, right? If, if you walk up, to, if somebody comes over and says, how's everybody doing today? And you go, great. How about yourself? And they go, fine. Can I take your order? Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, well that was a little bit of a bait and switch. You don't care. You're just, uh, you know, like people that aren't flirtatious, decidedly not flirtatious. I've learned like, leave them alone. I'm not disappointed in them. That's just what they're doing. That's how they are. But, I love to meet another flirtatious person. It's so fun. You sit at a cash register. What could 
could have been a simple in, uh, exchange of cash for a thing. And now all of a sudden you're sort of chatting or, and it's not, I guess it's a f- <laughs> form of extroversion. Although I kind of want to be also be like, I don't want to, I don't want to know them or, you know, I want to also be gone. I want to yeah. get out of that as fast as I can, but <laughs> to have those, to have those encounters be fun rather than either formal or colorless or, you know, God forbid, have them be uncomfortable. Why not be flirty for that? You know, flirty over and above what is what you would describe as friendly, mm-hmm. you know, flirtatious, just like, well, tell me about you. What's, you know, what, how are you? What's mm-hmm. your thing? Mm hmm. And so whatever adventures kind of pop into life for me, I think they're always a component of that where, where I bump into somebody and rather, or see somebody that I know. And rather than just sort of nod and go like, Oh, Hey, what's up? Um, you know, to say like, what's in your shopping basket? And that, that propels, that propels the day. But honestly, like I walking out of the door I have a, um, I have a, a meeting to go to, let's say, but I have no other agenda. I'm not on the make. I'm not trying to, <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to pick anybody up. I'm not trying to get rich. I'm not trying to further any kind of agenda. I got no worldview that I, that I am trying to promulgate. I'm just like up for it, I guess. And if I bump into somebody and they're like, I'm moving to Istanbul today and I've got room for you and your whole family, I would say, wow, let's go to Istanbul. You know, it's <laughs> because, because the lack of agenda do, means that there's not another thing that's, I, uh, unless there's a meeting I have to go to, there's nothing keeping me from just following where the day, you know, where the day, uh, fumbles toward. Yeah. So I do think everybody has access to those adventures. It's just that I, maybe, maybe there's maybe shyness intrudes, but also I feel like there's a, there's an in a self inhibiting nature. People don't want to flirt maybe as much as they are inclined to because they don't want to be embarrassed or, you or wanna, you know what? They don't want to, they don't want to give the impression or lead something lead, lead, that it might lead to something. Oh, I see. Right. And this was the thing I used to, that my girlfriends were so mad at me about because they would say, well, you don't want anything, but you're giving the impression to them that you want something and then they're going to want something. And I would always just sort of say, what? Like how, first of all, how can I be responsible for that? And second of all, not necessarily. What if you just, you know, they just are doing what I'm doing, which is we're just out having a day. We're just having a good time. We're not trying to, we're not trying to do anything. Um, I think, you know, I think there is, there are a lot of different interpretations for that. I think if somebody knows you or kind of gets the gist of it, then they don't, they don't think anything of it. But I think it's possible for, 
for that kind of thing to come across in other, you know, something other than a play, playful kind of a way. Like it's different when it's a little kid doing it because you know it's a little kid doing it. But you know, when it's a grown up, you're like, well, maybe they're just having fun. Maybe they want something. Well, I don't. I don't want to encourage that. You yeah. know, and that's and I could see. I could see why a girlfriend might not like that because well, that sort funny. of falls outside of the the safe zone in a way. Yeah, it does. You know what I mean? I mean, when somebody is flirtatious because they want something, boy, I can smell that on a person. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's so different from somebody who's being... You're really tied in, though, to to people. You have very good read on people, a super supernatural ability to get a read on people, I think. You don't know that you do because it's your own... You're the only... You know, you only know your own perspective in that sense. But I don't think I think you have a much much better read on people than most uh, most other living beings do. <laughs> well, think about think Dan about it. So wonderful. No, I'm being serious. Listen to these stories that you've told me about how oh that guy didn't look right, or I was in this thing, I knew this guy was going to do this, or these two guys came up to me and they were going to do this. I think you just you have a very very good read on people. It's like your superpower, and I think that. Or one of them, besides the oxidation thing. Yeah. And I think you, you know, you don't realize that other people can't necessarily do that. That's what I think. And they can't. They had, really can't. I wish that all of that had had created some, like, wealth in, in you know, <laughs> I, I guess it's created. You just it. haven't it's, used it for for financial gain yet. Yeah, that seems like the type of skill that you would describe someone who was a really good salesperson. Yes, if you had gone into sales, you'd be you'd be on a yacht right now instead of talking to me. Uh, I hate sales. I really do. I and I think maybe it's maybe it's that that I you know that it seems like it would be using it would be using knowledge for 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 ill you know, to profit from it, to use that ability to be friends with people and flirt with them and, and know things about them to use it, to sell them things would corrupt it. It would, it would be so ugly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I do, you flatter me, but I, you know, I do feel like I, I have a good way. I, I, I think there are people. people, there are people listening to the show, just nodding their heads based on what they know. I guarantee it. Well, they're nodding their heads because they're listening to hip hop. <laughs>